0: From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Hello and welcome back. I'm Hannah Cunningham.
1: And I'm Elizabeth Dowdell. And we'll be your hosts for the next half hour of environmental news.
0: We would like to begin this episode by acknowledging that Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, a campus and community recording studio located in Edmonton, Alberta, on Treaty 6, the historic and present territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples. Treaty is about relationships, and the very least we can do in this relationship is acknowledge the people who continue to live and gather here, and who continue to influence the stories we make and our understanding of the land around us.
1: Alright, gather up your snacks, y'all, because this week we're bringing you a book club episode. Uh, some of us have been reading through Street Fight, Handbook for an Urban Revolution, by Jeanette Sadi Khan and Seth Solomonow. Sadi Khan is a former commissioner of the New York City Department of Transportation, a position she held from 2007 to 2013.
0: The book is part history about her role as commissioner of the New York City Department of Transportation and part description of the on-the-ground lessons that can teach people how to look at streets differently.
1: Before we get into our thoughts on the book, Here's this week's environmental news headlines.
0: Microplastics have been found in snow in various locations around the world, causing scientists to warn of the, quote, significant contamination of the atmosphere, end quote. Samples taken from ice flows in the Greenland Sea had an average of 1,760 particles of microplastic per litre, while some samples from European locations had an average of 24,600 particles per litre. According to Dr. Melanie Bergmann of the Alfred Wegener Institute for Polar and Marine Research in Germany, the microplastic particles are being spread by wind.
1: Togubiga Mining, the Turkish subsidiary of Canadian Alamos Gold, Inc., is at the centre of peaceful protest after allegedly cutting down about four times as many trees as approved in their project environmental assessment permit. While a dozen or so demonstrators have been sleeping in tents and monitoring the mine site since July 26th, a much larger group turned out on August 5th to protest not just the loss of these trees, but the threat of environmental contamination from cyanide, a chemical to be used in the gold processing. About 5,000 people turned out for the recent protest, which started on a hill nearby, then proceeded to the mine site, where minimal security were forced to let protesters onto the mine grounds. Protesters talked about the demonstration not as an attack on the mine, but as an act of civil resistance, and participated in activities like playing the guitar and sharing balloons.
0: If you're a local listener, details on the City of Edmonton's Solar Rebate Program are now available. Edmontonians with solar systems installed in their homes will be able to claim $0.40 per watt towards the cost of the system. For more information on how to participate and get the rebate, check out our website for a link to the City of Edmonton's Solar Rebate Program webpage.
1: And if this week's episode doesn't satiate your hunger for book club action, there's a few more coming up in Edmonton. Let's Find Out is a monthly podcast that answers questions about the history of Edmonton, Alberta, and they're hosting a book club on the book... The Culture of Nature by Alexander Wilson. The conversation will take place on August 29th at 7 p.m. at the Mill Creek Cafe, which is located at 9562 82nd Ave here in Edmonton, Alberta. Even if you haven't read the book, show up and join in the conversation. Check out our website for a link to the Facebook
0: event. Additionally, the Edmonton Permaculture Guild is hosting their fourth ever Permi Book Club on September 5th at 7 p.m. at the Dirtbag Cafe which is located at 10505 107th Street in Edmonton, Alberta. They'll be reading Adventures in the Anthropocene, A Journey to the Heart of the Planet We Made by Gaia Vince. This book focuses on Vince's travels and the seemingly ordinary people she met along the way who are making extraordinary changes. For more information about the book and to register for the event, check out our website for the Eventbrite link. Spots are limited, so sign up quick.
1: So today we're reading Street Fight, Handbook for an Urban Revolution by Jeanette Sadek-Khan and Seth Solomonow. So this is Hannah and Liz. So I read the first seven chapters. Really in the beginning of the book, the authors lay out how streets kind of have a a programming and they have a particular code and they use these kind of computer analogies um, that we're all sort of reading this code and responding to it and that you can disrupt that. It's very sort of Silicon Valley disruption. And if you do that, there can be a lot of incredible benefits. But that's a fight, and so Street Fight really takes this fight concept and runs with it. it centers on New York and kind of this historical fight for what the city would be like that started, like back in the '60s and '70s with like Jane Jacobs and Robert Moses, and then how sort of how cities are built today, how they can operate, how they can be about people and be designed for people who live in them rather than know, say the machines or the other structures that occupy them.
0: There's that pedestrian focus, but it still includes everything else. Like I think at one point she mentions like, I'm not saying that there's never going to be cars because cars are this Mm -hmm. amazing feat that have brought us so far and they're always going to be there in some capacity. But it's, it's that switch, yeah, that switch towards like, focusing on the pedestrian and sort of giving, putting back that pedestrian power and the importance of the pedestrian in a city that I really liked. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And thinking about the street as sort of like this, this territory for these different sort of power dynamics to take place, which I thought was really interesting. I was at some parade in Edmonton. I forget what it was, but right after the parade had left and they hadn't opened up the streets yet, and everyone just kind of flooded into the street and was, like, following the parade. I don't know. There's that little bit of, like, joy. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm reclaiming. Look at me. I'm on the street. Like, there's <laughs> this a- is where cars live, and now I'm here. So. Yeah,
1: totally. I get that. That feeling, like, there's a liberation when you can get out on the street. Like, that space is not normally for you. It's not safe for you.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: As soon as that's closed, like, I think there is that yearning to have more spaces. Like, there are these these rules, these sort of unspoken rules and these codes and this programming that we very much live by. And so it is this like visceral thing, like you feel it and you're, when you get off the sidewalk and you get to occupy that space that is not normally meant for you as the pedestrian. Mm -hmm. Totally. They reminded me of this density point and how like cities are for cars. It's this whole idea, I guess, of disruption that that's an, that's something we all Sort of are taught and told that like you need to have a car to be mobile to get around to be transported anywhere but with cities this idea of that like uh, chapter two's title density is destiny how you know a dense city and urban city shouldn't you shouldn't need to do more than walk to the things you need right if you have so many thousands and thousands of people in the same space then why wouldn't you have services completely adjacent to them right why would you Site those kilometers away or like a half hour walk away or an hour walk away. Um, That might be a 10 or 15 or 30 minute drive. But why like why would you put things so far away?
0: And sort of the identity that is built off of that, which I'm pretty sure she I think she touches on that, especially like somewhere like Edmonton where that is such a issue. We have these like sprawling suburbs where there's nothing. There's no grocery store, there's nothing. There's m- maybe a gas station. Talking to people, it's kind of a in lots of circles. It's a weird thing if you don't drive or have a car.
1: Oh, you poor person without a car, you. Yeah, it's like, yeah.
0: Oh, like like oh no, I'll, I'll I'm taking the bus home or something, leaving like a group of friends or something like oh, like do you but. need a ride? Our public transit out to some of those suburb areas is so awful. But yeah, that it, it is a necessity but to. then it ties into that identity part and there was one quote I really liked in here the author was talking about Batoga's bus rapid transit system and there was a quote that says an advanced city is not one where poor people drive cars but where rich people take public transportation mm-hmm. and I thought that was mm-hmm. so like oh yeah that's such a speaks to that identity identity part of it
1: So in my life, in my personal life, my experience has been this tremendous freedom in, like, not having to own a vehicle. Okay, full disclosure. Like, I've never owned a car and I don't know how to drive one. And I don't want to. And I say that in that tone of voice because it's kind of shameful to not know how to drive a car and to not want to know how. And I know I'm going to have to learn. But, like, it's an important and necessary skill in our society. But I don't really want to do it and i don't like i love not having to ever think about oil changes or tire pressure or like price of gas or maintenance or all these things that come with a vehicle to get you around and i certainly participate in those like my household owns a vehicle and i i i remind my partner to do regular maintenance cuz it's <laughs> a, a an asset that we own but like i would i just think i would hate to have one and if i just want to like go somewhere. I can just hop on a bus or on the train or like walk there usually. So like I'm really, I feel like I've got this incredible kind of freedom that way, which is so much more of a, I think, an indicator of your your status than, than something like a material good. But I mean, those are worldviews. It's like packing light for a trip. Like you don't realize how freeing it is to not have stuff until you don't have to worry about your stuff.
0: I think about that all the time. I'm pretty lucky I live really close to campus, which is where Elizabeth and I spend all our time. time. (laughs) So I cycle or occasionally take the LRT, but it's also walkable. So I have lots of options that aren't driving. And because my neighborhood is so close to the university campus and to a couple different major roads coming from downtown, the traffic backups around rush hour after work are insane. It's wild. And it's so easy for me to just bike right through it all because once (laughs) I, yeah, yeah, there's a, there isn't a bike lane, but I can just use the neighborhood roads and cut through to my house and just bike and not get stuck in that. The freedom of just not having to participate in that, or even if you're on a bus and coming home, I've been stuck on buses, stuck in rush hour, Mm -hmm. but then you can like read a book. And so you said,
1: there's no bike path, but, like, there's roads or, like, it sounded almost like there's somewhere that you, like, cut through. So Mm -hmm. I I cut through. So, like, that's not a real route, but it's the one I'm taking. And so Desire Paths, the way the authors explain it is these are pathways that'll become visible over time and over use where people, um, either pedestrians or cyclists, have chosen to move instead of the designated sidewalk. Um, And you see these physical lines, these desire lines, and that's what um, urban planners should be looking at to, to figure out how the design they have currently is flawed, how it's not meeting sort of the user's need or demand or desire. And they're a great way to fix uh, a space or to to add, you know, what essentially what the, the user is telling you they need from their experience. And I always thought this was really interesting. The first time I learned about it was on campus and there was a trail across Quad that was always like a footpath. And Those footpaths slowly become like either there's major wide concrete, you know, sidewalks across the quad and across campus. And then there's like there's slimmer ones, there's skinnier ones that are totally desire paths that then have become um, marked out. And I think especially in Edmonton, like in the wintertime, you really see where foot traffic travels or where bike traffic travels, because Like no one's going an extra three blocks out of their way when they don't have to and it's minus 30. You are getting from point A to point B as efficiently as possible. Uh, So yeah, this idea of like cutting, cutting across, cutting through, cutting around that you know our our infrastructure isn't necessarily designed for our use and doesn't serve us.
0: I think, again, wintertime here just like illuminates everyone's real desires, I guess. (laughs) Um, But I always find that funny because in the winter, once we get our kind of consistent snow cover, depending on how the roads were plowed or what the little packed down snow situation is like, you won't see the lines on the road for like maybe months. And I feel like every time wherever we're going in the spring, I'll sort of be like, oh, yeah, like we just kind of erased that lane in the winter. Three lanes just became two lanes. People just started.
1: Vehicles still moved.
0: And people made their way through or, oh, yeah, we kind of forgot about that little slight turn in the road. We kind of just went straight Straight. through as long as there wasn't a curb there or something.
1: In the first couple of chapters, there's a bunch of examples of in New York when Sadiq Khan first took over as commissioner, as transportation commissioner, not traffic commissioner. That point is made very clearly about reclaiming unused road space from vehicles for, for pedestrian and other, other purposes, other people, other groups and users, um, and how transformative that could be, like turning what was a couple of cars' worth of parking at a weird set of intersections into like a, a public plaza and how it could benefit both traffic, like control traffic better, reduce collisions, both like pedestrian car collisions, car-car collisions, and just orient traffic better and and improve congestion and issues like that. And I thought that was really fascinating how poorly our streets can develop when they are in a lot of ways a holdover from former uses. So in New York, like it's an older city, they used to have like horses or other different types of transportation before the automobile. And so where buildings have come up and where like spaces have become occupied are you know, became those things before cars were there. And now you're adapting that landscape to cars, but there's faults and failures and just how cool it can be to take a look at that and take, like, a deep look at it and look at ways to remedy it, not just for cars, like, you know, this, this combustion engine transportation, but for, like, the New Year's of the street, so new old maybe, like, pedestrians or, like, bicycles. And if you look at our streets in winter, you could totally, like... Yeah. You know, lose a lane to bikes all the time. Yeah. Uh, You could have far wider sidewalks. You could actually have sidewalks in a lot of places that don't in the city. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because no one
0: can tell what's there under the snow.
1: Yeah. You want (laughs) to walk there? Make your own rules. Walk there.
0: (laughs) I found especially the author's perspective on just sort of emphasizing that the importance of pedestrians and people having people on the street how that's how people are moving around through the city how that affects so much like safety I know at one point she made a point about like yeah if you think about it having more people on the sidewalks and everything there's all those eyes looking out for other Mm -hmm. people and making sure everything's safe and just sort of having people around
1: I find this really interesting to think about the context of this book so a place like New York where you've got big city density, right? You've got um, multiple multi-story buildings. You've got tons of people in a single block. Uh, you've got just, like, so much density. And we, I don't feel like we really have that in our core. Like, I live in the middle of two... Well, at the intersection of two busy streets in the downtown core. And it's usually pretty quiet on the street. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of people out there. There's not a lot of reason to be out there. Besides, uh, besides patios and patio season, you don't see... A lot of people, there's nowhere to hang out, there's nowhere to congregate, there's nowhere to be social you know, on the street space. And she talks about not just transportation in cities, but this idea that cities create an energy and they have a vibrancy and they have a vitality that really gets activated and, like, lived and reproduced when you have people on the street. Being, you know, being engaged, participating in things like arts and culture and community What I find interesting, though, and I've never seen and I'm curious about in our own city, is places that have a lot of density. Like when you see a lot of our suburbs have really incredible density, actually. They've got tons of multi-unit buildings, lots of people concentrated in our our suburban areas. It's not just necessarily sprawling single-family homes, but like, like where do they go? What do they do? Where do they get to gather? Why don't we have those sort of, you know, suburban plazas? Is it just something that you can capture in a, in a downtown street or is that something that could be, you know, a part of, of other types of neighbourhoods? In terms of the downtown core here in our city, I know things are proposed to change. So density, like a lot more residential high-rises and a lot more urban green space, and those are both exciting things. Like this change has taken some time in the city of Edmonton and it's coming slowly, but it seems like it's happening so, in here in Chapter Six, the Battle for a New Times Square really lays out some of the anxieties and some of the challenges and some of the pushback to making changes to that code and that operating system of streets are for cars, public spaces are not for the public they're for they're for transportation they're for moving people around they're not for gathering and congregating and I found that really interesting to hear the authors talk about like what are the headlines were gonna be like or the the overwhelming criticism of every part of like a transformation until a few months later, it wasn't criticisms of the transformation. It was that, or that, you know, traffic had improved. It was that traffic hadn't improved enough. Mm. So, you know, but then <laughs> like, okay, well, traffic's better and you've got all this brand new put, like public space and it's being completely occupied and like, For Times Square, the real estate values, like the commercial values, were phenomenal. They had, I think, it was like 300% increase. So that there's this incredible business case for having people out in your city, not in their home, but out, out being social, out buying things. Right? It just seems so absurd that any city would not really jump on this opportunity to transform, Uh, especially as more and more of these examples or these blueprints are being Built of how to do it, and that's something I thought was cool. How she talks about different cities and how they like stole or like borrowed or were inspired by so many places.
0: I guess part of the like conflict, like another player entering the street fight, in the last kind of concluding chapter, the author talks about sort of incorporating. Okay, how are we going to deal with all these technological advances as they enter Mm. the street
1: fight? Like what, electric scooters
0: and... Yeah, electric scooters, things like uh, autonomous cars. And at one point, page 278, um, she talks about
1: to sort it. of cities
0: that are trying to be on the leading edge of integrating technology and not kind of trying to just suppress it or force it back. It's called the Helsinki model. And they're trying to... They're sort of looking at these digital platforms as a way to create market-based transportation. So sort of capitalizing on these technologies and also trying to eliminate the need for private car ownership by 2025, it says here. So the idea is that you could sort of sign up for this service and pay a monthly fee of varying prices. Um, So the one example here in the book is The organizing principle is based on the view that uh, how you get around is something that's provided for you, a service, instead of something you have to own, like a car. So if all channels of public transportation, like buses, trains, taxis, carpools, car share, are integrated into this service, you as a citizen could pick a bundled package of these services. So the starting example price they give is uh, €95, or about 106 American dollars. I'm assuming, for a monthly transportation subscription for... Unlimited public transport of any of these different kinds of vehicles um, in the city. And then up to hundred kilometers of on-demand car share services like Uber mm. or Lyft or whatever, if there's European varieties of those. And then with the kind of more expensive options to add on, like say, if you wanted to go to the city, go on a trip, you could add on like 500 kilometers or something of a shared car use. And then if you stay within those usage levels, you pay your flat fee and then paying extra for above and beyond. And I thought that was really interesting. I'd never really thought about anything like that before. Mm -hmm. What do you you think about that kind of like streaming things like that?
1: There could be a lot of opportunity to it if the cost was right. Making Mm -hmm. things on a subscription model or a pay-to-play model when it's something integral like the transport of your public citizens um, and especially when we talk about people who don't have a lot of spare cash... Um, I think there are a lot of really interesting ethical questions it brings up, Mm -hmm. but like in, in theory as a concept, I think it'd be cool. It could be really exciting. Well, okay. So in the book, they talk about, um, getting people on the street and getting them cycling and this, uh, project called Ciclovia, um, again in Bogota, the authors go see it in 2007. They get inspired by another city. Uh, so in 2007, the authors are in Bogota for uh, to see Ciclovia take place, which is kind of the authors describe it as a, a central park of the streets. For Sunday, every Sunday, a number of miles of street are shut down to cars, and only bicycles and pedestrians are allowed to enter. And it's a huge success that uh, when the program was first introduced in Bogota, there was about a thousand people who regularly went, but the then their version of a transportation commissioner used to. Work in uh, TV and the media, and so he got a bunch of his former colleagues to spotlight it, and make it a big deal. And they go from about a thousand people turning out to I think fifty thousand. Oh wow! Turning out, and then it just it just becomes the norm, and um, the city hasn't looked back. And they, it's, this is every Sunday. And I thought this was so cool because I had, I had been in Guadalajara last summer on like a tour. And sure enough, we were, we were walking around like the old, old Guadalajara, like the core on a Sunday and all these bikes, you had to watch out for bikes on the street. And we were being told about how, no, we're like, where's the traffic? Like where are all the cars? And our guide was telling us oh, no, it's Sunday, like there's no cars. I was like, what do you mean? She's like, oh, like, like, you close the streets to cars on Sunday. You can only take your bike or you can walk. And I was like, what? This is so cool. So they bring this back to New York, and New York does this summer streets event. And they they don't just ride bikes around. Like, they have these giant multi-mile bike stretches, but they um, throw, like, pool parties, and they have food trucks, and they have all sorts of activities um, cool to do on the street. And, yeah, it was just this really cool way of being inspired by another city and sort of taking that back and seeing it become a success. And I thought, like, yeah, like, I want that in Edmonton. Come on, Edmonton. (laughs) And I know there's, like, critical mass, I think, is a big bike riding, collective bike ride, but it it would be something else to have those streets shut down for, you know, a different community to, to use them. That's a chapter called Stealing Good Ideas. Okay, also, Edmonton has been talking about a gondola for urban transportation, and that's another one in this chapter of stealing good ideas, how really? Medellin is a city in between two mountain ranges, and so the core is sort of in the valley, and then the city progresses up the the slopes um, on all sides, or on both sides, and so gondolas, obviously. Uh, people, like, before that, it was just stairs, right? People would have to take tons and tons of stairs, um, so gondolas and escalators are how they transformed their... Um, their transportation system, so covered escalators, uh, so that you know people could get up into their their neighborhoods, um, and then yeah, gondolas as, that move like hundreds of thousands of people every day, just like a bus system would. Wow, yeah, it was pretty pretty cool. That's a cool chapter, man. If you read any chapter in this book, stealing good ideas,
0: a lot of cool ideas. One I didn't read, <laughs> but now I will.
1: <laughs> it's interesting the experience you get of a city too, depending upon how you, you travel it. So, I mean, I, I love that too, that you're, you know, when, I, when I'm when i traveling, I wander through plazas and I walk around and I try and sort of explore where I am. And I sort of try to stay where something's happening, that there is something to see because, I don't know, like that's that's really the way to get to know a city, I think.
0: Yeah. I think definitely cities I've been where I haven't driven there and then I am taking transit all around the city. Those are the cities where I Feel like I'm so much more comfortable with the geography of that city, mm-hmm. even now that I've it's been a year since I've been there or something. Just that having to navigate and yeah, just kind of not being distracted by driving again, being able to sit there on the bus and sort of look around, notice where I'm going, pay attention and where I have to get off. Yeah,
1: um, you build so much more of a mental map when you're at that street level. I think I strongly recommend Street Fight. Mm-hmm. I think it's for someone who would probably not read a book on urban planning. It is an excellent book. I wouldn't even say it's on urban planning entirely. That is certainly a theme and a thread, but there's a lot more going on in here. And it was engaging. There's tension. It's all about a fight, really, a fight for your life on the streets in your cities. A guide to revolution, like the title says, for how to how to change a space.
0: Yeah, I really I really enjoyed it too. Super easy to digest for someone who knows nothing about urban planning or transportation infrastructure really Mm -hmm. so
1: thanks for listening to our book club on
0: street fight a handbook for an urban revolution that's all the time we have for this week thanks for listening
1: if you have questions or comments about the show send us an email to tara at cgsr.com tweet us at Terra Informa, or check us out on Facebook. To catch up on the latest environmental news, visit our website, terrainforma.ca.
0: Thank you to our volunteers for helping out with this week's episode. Terra Informa is produced with respect on Treaty 6 territory. We are entirely volunteer-run and survive because of generous donations to our host studio, CGSR 88.5 FM. Visit cgsr.com to learn more about the station and consider a donation to keep environmental news like this on the air. We've been your hosts, Elizabeth Dowdell and Hannah Cunningham. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll catch us next week right here on Terra Informa.